What is the concept of immersion, and how does it help us understand our lives? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we explore the notion of immersion, how it helps us defend against death anxiety, and the many related ideas that notion leads us to. We're going to play for you an interview we conducted with Dr. Merlin Mowry. She is retired associate professor of social ethics, Department of Philosophy and Religion, at Central Michigan University. Dr. Mowry is author of Death Anxiety and Religious Mystification in the Thought of Ernest Becker, A Feminist Reconsideration, a chapter of Death and Denial, Interdisciplinary Perspectives on the Legacy of Ernest Becker. Here's the interview with Dr. Mowry. Merlin, welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. Hi, Merlin. And hi, Steve. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for being our guest. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So, Merlin, you told us about an important but unused and undeveloped idea in the writings of Ernest Becker, our favorite author. In his best-known work, The Denial of Death, he wrote that we have two ontological motives or drives, ontological meaning the nature of being. He said, on the one hand, we humans want to be unique, to stand out as something different and apart. And on the other hand, we are impelled by a powerful desire to identify with the cosmic process, to merge and lose oneself in something larger giving us a sense of transcendent value. This is Becker's kind of flowery language. We call the one motive, standing out, being heroic. And the other motive, losing oneself in something larger, you call immersion. And you use the term in the context of you immerse yourself in something. Would you elaborate on this a little? How do you define the term immersion? You got off to a good start defining it. And one of the quotes that I recall, he talks about, he doesn't use the word immersion there, but he talks about merging with, which is where the idea of immersion comes from. And he, he does use that idea and scattered throughout his later writings. Immersion is the desire to lose yourself out of the fear and anxiety of the overwhelmingness of nature and the world and the opportunities of the world. Um, Immersion reflects that need to protect ourselves by merging with something larger, by something meaningful that we don't have to accomplish individually. We can simply be a part of it through our identification, our activities, our service or sacrifice for that cause or um, joining in to that effort or that meaningful goal that we are a part of something larger than ourselves and we gain our feeling of value, merit, worth that way. It's not active versus passive, heroism being active, immersion being passive. It's not passive at all. But what we've done is take the burden of being the leader, of being the creative one, the burden of that I'll use the word heroism, that heroic act itself. And we may be in support of that hero, or we may be in support of that goal or that 
achievement that's being sought by more creative people who have come up with the idea. So instead of standing apart, standing outside of the the group or the ideology, we're immersed in it. We're we're part of it. Exactly. And I'd like to get back to something you said. You also described the feeling of transcendence one gains through immersion as well as the transcendence we gain through heroism. And I'm glad you did that because both of them provide that same kind of meaning. And this is sometimes confusing when Becker goes back and forth with the transcendence on for both of those roles. But the transcendence for the hero is something attained by oneself. You stand out, you are noticed, you have done something of value that is observed and recognized and rewarded by other people or the system you are in or whatever it might be. But there is also an aspect of transcendence for with the experience of immersion. And that's because you have connected yourself to something of transcendent value and you have served or sacrificed or in some ways supported and helped move that along to achieve its transcendent goals. So it's a vicarious kind of transcendence, whereas the hero experiences it directly. Could I stand out on a limb here for a second and say, stop the steal and charging the capital en masse could be considered people immersing themselves in the an ideology or a, a movement or whatever? Well, of course. Okay. Of course. But, you know, sometimes there are opportunities for individual heroism. I mean, this, the camera can create it by whom they turn their lens towards. Right. But most of our motives, according to Becker, for good or ill, are driven by desires to achieve something for ourselves and demonstrate our own superior potentials and actualize them, or in support of immersion, in support of some some goal that we identify with, we believe in, we give ourselves over to. So it doesn't have to be an extreme situation. And I think whatever your interpretation of January 6th, it's pretty extreme. What occurred, uh, the invasion of the Capitol, Extreme immersion. It happens in all kinds of, of our life experiences. In religion. It's... Yeah. Merlin, is it fair to say we all have a little bit of narcissism, just like we're all neurotic to some degree? And what is meant by that? It isn't just fair. I mean, Becker insists on this repeatedly, but he's not describing a sort of psychological diagnosis. He's describing something that frankly makes a lot of just common sense to me that we can never escape ourselves. We are always the innermost part of what we are is just our own identity, ourselves. And it seems like pretty natural to me to recognize, we might not like the term, but to recognize we can never not be self-concerned. We can never not be anxious about our own well-being, our safety, our, as he says, goodness, and have those things recognized. I think we've got so many notions of narcissism, some of which are, as I said, diagnosable, that we want to, to not see ourselves in those terms. But I've often, in teaching, when we talk about human experience, I've often said we can never not be the center of our own selves. No matter how much else we care about, at the very core, the first thing we are is our own self. And we can't not ever be not ourselves. 
and our acts of, we're certainly capable of acts of unselfishness and great generosity. And that's a good thing. But the idea that we can just not even be a self and a matter of concern, it just strikes me as logically in more psychological and emotional ways. It's just not possible. We're just constituted as selves in a way that we cannot overcome. So where does where does this come from? Where does our natural affinity we have for other human beings come from? Or empathy, where does it come from? Well, I think it's a sense of, of awareness of, of fellow creatures, what we share in common. And I think our capacity, I, I think our capacity for empathy can be encouraged or discouraged by the culture. But we do recognize in one another that we are we are common kinds of creatures. And we can recognize things about ourselves and others and things about others and ourselves. And I think that is just, just the way the human brain works. So I think our capacity for empathy is pretty deep in us, but not so deep it can't be lost or overridden. Is taking care of your own needs by yourself a healthy way to look at living? I think, are you asking me or, or yeah. what I think about <laughs> Becker? Good question. Yeah. Both, I guess. Right, Ken? Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, I think it's a bad way because it doesn't sound very pleasant to me. But I think Becker believes it's pretty difficult for most people to live that way, that a great source of meaning in life is in terms of our relationships to others. I mean, even if you're going to be a hero, you still need to be acknowledged by other people and as much as possible, people with expertise and concern and interest in the kinds of things that you're doing, for somebody disinterested or, or incapable, their recognition will not make you feel heroic. So heroism, but you cannot create, you might need very special kinds of people to give you the feeling of heroism, but you cannot create that feeling of heroism by yourself. As for immersion, immersion also involves our sense of other people that we are joining in some kind of shared project uh, we've taken on some shared goals. We are making similar sacrifices to support our goal and to support each other in the pursuit of that goal. So I think the idea that we simply can be alone and we certainly cannot give our own selves meaning. And I think that's probably the most fundamental thing I could say, drawing on Becker, that would make it clear that there are recluses, there are, there are exceptions to this. But if you're asking me, for a generality, as a rule of thumb, is, is this going to work? I think not for most people, and Becker clearly makes it part of the human nature in his view that we cannot give ourselves meaning, that we have to give that meaning and that assurance. We can, we can find something meaningful. In fact, he's, you can see this when he talks about the artist in Denial of Death, about the dilemma of the artist who can stand apart from the culture in many, many ways. And the novelty that artist brings to their work or whatever, whatever medium they're working in and their willingness to challenge society and its expectations and its rules and its preferences, willing to be poor, like the starving artists that we often talk about, they can reject society and other people in many, many ways. But in the end, Becker sees something very tragic about even their greatest creations. They cannot give the meaning the heroic meaning of achievement to themselves. So right. I think it's logically hardwired in Becker's own thinking about human. 
we had one guest say even the the monk the hermit alone or the monk who's taken a vow of silence and doesn't communicate with the other monks is still devoting his prayer and his service to God and to the world and humanity, even without getting any recognition, he believes that Mm -hmm. the recognition is there just the same. And it counts as sacrifice, as great sacrifice that many people think they could never do. And that's why it's elevated. If we could go back to what you're saying about immersion for a second, Mm -hmm. because it seems like there's a built-in contrast between heroism and immersion. And there's a kind of, I think you said once, a counterbalance. Is that a fair way to say it, that they're in counterbalance? Well, I think in his writing, they're set up to dramatize the difference in the motives towards those activities and in how meaning is gained in those activities. But I think the very best way to find meaning and purpose in non-harmful and potentially creative ways is that we have some of both. We need some heroism so that immersion doesn't make us secondary and and play a service role in all of our lives. And we need some immersion so that heroism doesn't make us feel like we're the only thing that matters. I think both of those motives are so, I think they're simple, they're clear, and I think very persuasive. Human beings need to feel special and they need to feel like they belong and that they care for and are cared for by others. And they have something to offer beyond themselves. And in Becker's terms, purpose, meaning, self-esteem, being cared for and standing apart or being immersed in something larger than themselves are all defenses against death anxiety. Right. A way to defend against your inevitable mortality, the fear or the terror that lurks beneath your life. And both of them can be creative or destructive. Right. Wow. That's the reason for the balance. Yeah. Pulling you back from, you know, from the brink there. But as Ken and I were talking about this a little earlier in the day, it occurred to me that both heroism and immersion, what we're talking about here, they're potentially narcissistic, as Ken just mentioned it, that they're not humble or grateful in the sense that you're standing apart. Well, that's not that's not really being humble. Or you're part of something great and grand. Well, that's not exactly being humble. And it's not exactly being grateful to your parents or the the world for giving you life or what any of those things. Can you comment on that? It occurred to us as we mm-hmm. as we thought about all this. No, I, th- I think you're making a really good point. And I would agree that you're right. But I would look at this from a different perspective. Rather than seeing it as, as opposites, I would see them on a continuum. And okay. part of the reason for that is I do think we all are narcissistic. Again, not diagnosable, not in that sense, but in the sense that we have our own self-concern and it is very difficult for us to overcome it. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean that we are narcissistic in the diagnosable way. 
I think um, we have a bad association with that term. But when you read Becker's description of it, which does not rely on, again, not doing the diagnosable stuff, he describes it as a human characteristic that is inevitable in all of us. And I find it very persuasive in the same way that I think we can never not be our own selves. I mean, even in drastic situations, our, our survival instincts kick in and they can be selfish, although we are also capable of overcoming those. But the survival tech desire and response is not going to go away. It's automatic in us. And I think from there, it's not just when that car is headed right for me as I'm crossing the street. That's not the only time that survival instinct is there. It's always there. And that survival instinct in, in the sense I'm in the examples I'm giving, I'm trying to show that narcissism, that concern for yourself, that desire to survive, that reaction to things that threaten us. I think that those are natural and normal and they can be negative, but there's always a certain selfishness that I think that we really cannot overcome. And we may try to do it and we may get closer and closer and perhaps some very special people. I'm just leaving the option open. Some very special people <laughs> may be able to overcome it. But yeah. Most human beings can't. And um, so I would see narcissism as natural and I would start grading it as it approached what we think of clinically or psychologically as narcissistic. I would start seeing the problems of that. The fact that Becker says we're all narcissistic, just like we're all neurotic. He's showing that they are normal and natural and have very negative manifestations that plenty of us show. But by itself, it doesn't have to go in that direction, is I think what he's saying. I think he thinks it's very likely it'll go in that direction. He doesn't have a very optimistic view of human nature. But um, I think he's persuasive. And a lot of this is unconscious. These are unconscious right. processes. Merlin? What is conscience? Well, Becker says that it's natural. And by that, he says that he gives examples, as he often does, of children and their first sense of themselves being in the world. They're frightened. They're overwhelmed. They have no power. They have no control. And they very much need to please their caretakers. And they learn to do that. And what they learn to do they learn to do that by following instructions or doing things that makes their caretakers pleased, happy, proud, whatever the positive response may be. And Becker says this is the source of this natural instinct to be good and to be right. But it's anxiety, basically, he's saying. But it does mature into a conscience, a willingness to um, subordinate ourselves to certain authorities and to follow the rules. Of course, the danger there is the rules that we follow and the kind of person to whom we subordinate ourselves, whom we're willing to serve and obey. But he does think there is something to our own sense of our own integrity and self-respect that comes from our sense that we are right and good in ways that are acknowledged by others. And again, just to repeat, it's the rules we're following where we could step back and critique and see whether they are good or not, whether they're right or not. It, may, it mostly comes from the willingness to conform, to gain approval and safety at the earliest, at the earliest level. But we are certainly capable of maturing beyond that. That seems to be a pretty important function that a healthy society has to do: is periodically take a look at the norms and the things that are being taught, and look at them critically, and stand outside them a little bit for a minute, and say, "Is this really what we want to be doing?" 
Well, I think that's a great point. But cultures are just not, most of us, there's this sort of a conservative, and by, I'm not talking politically, I'm talking saving what is. There was a, a very powerful instinct, both at the individual level, but also at the group level, to maintain the status quo heroism. But you cannot create that. There's always danger and disruption and novelty. Yep. And I do think you're right. And he makes a comment in one point talking about the emergence of the world religions. And he goes back to some very early things about them. And I, I think this is in, um, it's either Escape from Evil or Denial of Death, or more likely it's in both. But he believes that there's very little change that comes over time. He does say that every culture needs to do exactly what you're saying. But the tendency is far more likely that they hold on as tightly as possible. Change and novelty are frightening. They're disruptive. Most people feel safer. This is immersion working. Most people, one of the negative aspects of immersion, most people feel safer with the status quo, even sometimes when they're not benefited by it or when they're paid off in ways that to gain their cooperation that are, that are perfectly apparent to them. It's just safer. It may be a carryover from the pre-scientific thinking where we didn't really understand mm -hmm. cause and effect very well. And the reason we do it this way is because it worked last time and the right. time before that. We need to plant the potatoes, and we need the potatoes to grow. And if they don't grow, we're going to starve. So right. this is how we do it. And right. maybe we'll let Ken, with his crazy ideas, grow a little patch of potatoes over there with his ideas. But the rest of us, we're doing it the way our grandparents taught our parents who taught us how to do right. it, because that's what worked. And, and you you're describing the attitude of, of grudging tolerance to, for Ken and his potato patch that we show to artists and to people yes. on the margins who critique the society. Yeah. We all kind of tend to hun hunker down. Well, you can't get carried away with the crazy artist because his idea about pouring bleach on the potato seeds to make them pure. Um, <laughs> I know. It's so good. Result, well, it results in very few potatoes and a lot of dead people. So let's not get carried away. Ken's a great speech maker, but we're going to keep growing the potatoes like we know how to do it, and we'll let him do his own little thing over there. Right. It goes into the wider idea of culture being your source of identity and right. self-worth. Mm -hmm. And so if someone comes along and says, well, you know, America's history is not so pretty. It's kind of a bloodbath and, and filled with racism. And let's teach that in the schools. I forget the term that's being used now in terms of teaching the history of America from the standpoint of slavery and indigenous people and, and oppression that exists. What is it called? Race theory. Critical yes. theory. Critical it's been around theory. for a few right. decades. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But it's being, it's being. It's just now being noticed. But it's being viciously resisted yes. too. And people are saying, this is a horror. How dare they want to teach this unpatriotic? This is yes. considered unpatriotic. And you say, well, what is, what's unpatriotic about the truth and about an accurate, inclusive history that other cultures have successfully done, like the Germans after World War II, who've been teaching their kids about the horrors of Nazism. Well, As, you're saying, why don't we do it? And the answer is that we value heroism more than truth. 
Right. And yes. what well I think put. the Germans did was remarkable, but there has been active resistance to it since it started, and that resistance is growing. And those neo Nazis are in touch with our neo Nazis. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But see, we, we're talking here about Ernest Becker, and he was talking about conscience, as you said, it's being natural. But you had said something when we talked earlier about the smarter and more accurate claim is that empathy is natural. Could you comment on that, the role of empathy in our lives and in our society? Are you talking about what we said the other day or just a few minutes ago? Both, in that you, we were talking about conscience being natural and that perhaps the more accurate, smarter, more accurate way to talk about it is in terms of empathy being okay. more natural. All right, that helps. Thank you. I think I made that comment because it seems to me that empathy would be necessary for conscience because part of it is just simply anticipatory. And I'm not sure we can assume what earliest stage we would want to say a child was empathetic. But um, I read once on an article on empathy that even if one baby starts crying in the nursery that day they were born, if one baby starts crying, the others start crying. And I've read several things along that line about how early babies show a response to each other and just tracking their eyes and their interest in others. Mm -hmm. It, it just makes sense to me that empathy is probably the precursor of a conscience. And the point at which Becker is talking about conscience emerging from the child's anxiety about their safety and trying to follow the rules, I don't see those as contradictory. It seems to me empathy might also make our rule following a little more sensitive and show more concern, be a little more generous than just I'm going to follow this rule so that I get the candy or I'm going to follow this rule so I don't get punished. I think just also reading some of those articles, this is some time ago, some other examples don't come to mind at the moment, but reading those articles just reminds me of that natural appearance of what people, including psychologists, call some kind of empathy. It makes sense that out of that, as well as our anxiety, we come up with conscience. And if we want to talk about conscience, not in a cynical way, but in the way that we think of it as the foundation of, of gaining a moral compass, then I, I think you can't leave out empathy. I mean, a whole lot of the philosophy of, of right and wrong has to do with that sense of, of our, our concern for others. And that grows out of taking what we know about our own selves and being able to see it in them so that we can anticipate that they may care about the same things that we do. So I think it's a good blend with what he says about conscience. I love it. I love where you've taken this. And I never really thought about that relationship between empathy and conscience and conscience is coming from empathy. Starting with it. Yeah. Nietzsche calls conscience our way of hurting ourselves, but that's Nietzsche. <laughs> Ken, Ken, and I, Ken and I are fans of Michael Sugru who's kind of like the cliff notes of, of Western philosophy for dummies. We listen to him instead of reading the original texts. But Nietzsche has a, an interesting take on conscience. I'm sorry, I digress. That's we've okay. Been, we've been talking with Merlin Mowry about 
immersion, heroism, on a whole lot of related topics. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a conversation with Dr. Merlin Mowry about the Beckerian concept of dual ontological motives, including immersion, heroism, and a whole lot of related topics. Merlin, you've written that the writings of Ernest Becker are a little sexist in an anachronistic sort of way. And also, how do they relate to patriarchy? I think um, there's a real complexity in Becker's views of women. One thing that surprised me Several years ago, I was reading some earlier essays of Becker's before his more famous books came out. Back in the 60s, he wrote a really interesting article reflecting on why it is that menopausal women are so depressed. And he also realized that depression seemed to be a kind of characteristic of women in general, but it's especially pronounced during menopause. And he was trying to figure out why. And during the 60s, I don't think a lot of men were concerning themselves with menopause, even their wives' menopause, yeah, other than to want to take a vacation or something during it. That's pretty good. But, um, good, good for him. Yeah. Really. And he came to the conclusion that women's only value in our culture was their service to family, giving birth to children, raising them, preparing them for independence. And while he acknowledged some women work, that really was not the path women were expected to take or, re- or very much rewarded for taking. That their identity and their usefulness was very, very narrow. And he realized that at menopause, women realized that meaningful part of their lives were over. And he wrote about that in a really thoughtful way, you know, challenging that. He also, a year or two later, wrote an interesting article about why it is that men are almost exclusively the only perpetrators of self-exposure. Women almost never do it. Men are the mainly the ones. And he asked himself, why would a man want to walk up to usually women or groups of women and show his penis? Any heroism, but you cannot create that feeling of heroism. Whether women find them attractive. I mean, it's nice if they do, he says, but they don't really care about that. That display is all they need. He demonstrates that he is a man And all it takes is a penis. No other expectations. No raise the babies. No go grocery shop. Nothing else. And I was so struck by how perceptive that was and how early it came when you consider the women's movement and the history of the 20th century. But in his later writings, his more significant writings, he seldom shows that that insight or even sees what he's saying about women and their social roles in any kind of a critical way. He talks about religion and other social structures, ways of defining a culture, a religious culture, a political culture, the the society we live in, in such a hierarchical way. He makes it clear the religions are patriarchal, and in patriarchy, we are speaking of the leadership and the value of men as people and masculinity as a set of traits that are valued. Women are very secondary. They have these hierarchies where we have people on the top layered by their value, their utility, right? Those hierarchies are really better seen as dualisms. 
So those things at the top are in the powerful and valued part of the dualism. And those things along the bottom are less valuable and they are seen as sometimes merely less valuable or, of, or neutral, but more often seen as negative. And when we've got those kinds of hierarchies, we can see very clearly where the value and the order of society is. Those things that are valuable on the, on the masculine side are also those things that are selected for heroism or heroic goals and achievements. Those things on the negative side are not seen as appropriately heroic. In fact, their only roles would be described as immersion. Service, obedience, doing the dirty work, (laughs) freeing the people on the powerful side to do powerful, valuable things. So I think there is a hierarchy and a dualism implied in the way he talks about culture and in the way he talks especially about religion. And he does conclude, he starts this conversation in Escape from Evil. It's in, in earlier works too, but reaching his conclusion in Denial of Death, he believes that the illusions that will have the greatest likelihood of succeeding in giving us a safer and more meaningful way of seeing the world, a safer and more meaningful illusion will be religions. And he sees Christianity as especially valuable because there is a God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Ghost. He sees Christianity as producing the kind of breakthrough move in which God, the Father is dethroned by the Son. And he interprets that to mean that there is a kind of individual, not just the not just the God is honored. Everything isn't such a sharp hierarchy because individuals, when the son takes over for the father or becomes the father in the in religious language, but in the human society, when the son grows up, the son is no longer under the control of the father. And he becomes, he has the chance to become at the top of the hierarchy socially in his culture. The and patriarch. He becomes the patriarch. Right. Yeah. And he says Christianity marks a kind of emergence of individual freedom, symbolically. And he can only say that if he's only talking about men. Right. Because women are constrained in very serious ways, certainly going back, you know, thousands of years, highly constrained by religions in most cases. And some of that has improved. But in the 60s, for him to recognize menopausal depression and showing your penis, for him to recognize (laughs) these two things about women and men and not to see it in his own day is really a shocker. So he still equates with, with Freud and many other symbol systems, things like women with death, the body, with finitude, with evil, with nature limitation. He still has that same kind of of dualism where men represent the head, intelligence, freedom, autonomy, power, what is good. That same set of dual characteristics, one positive and powerful, one negative and powerless. So I think I've made sort of a jumble of that. But I think that that's, that's what I was talking about in looking at the ways in which he is and is not sexist. Well, even when he wrote about the science of man 
And Ken and I have talked about this in the past, and the word man in philosophy in the past has meant humanity. And I said, yeah, that's fine if you're a man, but if you're a woman and you hear the science of man, you have to stop and say, wait a minute, is that being inclusive or not? Whereas if you say the, the science of humanity, I mean, just takes that question off the table. But I got to say, there's no disguise there. Right. They tell you exactly what they mean, and they do not mean women. No. They mean men. Yeah. Well, Ken would say, Jacques Barzin would argue that, no, the Bible says God made man male and female. And I said, yeah, that was written by goat herders 3,000 years ago, and the translator was probably a man. So that's how they came up with that. You know, it's God being a man and having a son and all of that. It would be nearly un unimaginable in that era. By then, whatever kinds of roles of power women did have, and they, they did in some cultures at a certain point, with agriculture, society changed in such a way that that was long past. With agriculture, demands on labor were such that it was efficient for men to have multiple wives and to have children and to control those wives and their sexuality to make sure the children, once they've got property, the man's property, it was his, not hers. The man's property is passed on to his own children. I mean, all kinds of constraints entered into the picture. And this is a very partial view. So, but that had been going on long enough for whatever memory might have survived was way outdated. I mean, it just simply, it was not preserved intentionally. And it's hard to imagine that it survived in any other way. So I would be surprised if people were self-conscious of the fact that women were repressed. That was just the natural way of things. There's a good discussion of that in a book called The Prehistory of Sex. And I, don't ask me who wrote it because I can't remember the name of anybody, let alone some, somebody yeah. I read 20 years ago. But it makes that point about the agrarian society. Mm -hmm. But then as we moved more into the industrial age, we could get away from those ancient agriculture-based values. We could, if we yeah. wanted to. Yeah, well, but we didn't I'm, apparently want to. <laughs> uh, but I think this is important. I think it is important to put these ideas in context, which is what we're trying to do. Yeah. So taking a different turn for a second, what do we need in our relationships with other people? For what? Well, just to get along in our society, to get along with others. What do we need to live a good life with other people? Well, I think since we're looking at, if we're talking with Becca, we're going back to this dynamic between what human beings need, the heroism and the immersion. I think there is a lot of wisdom there. And as I've shown you, there's certainly many things about Becca I'm willing to criticize and even scold about. But I really like his writing. I respect what he's accomplished. I just take him to task when I don't. But, you know, that doesn't undermine what, what I do respect. I think those are very wise observations. And he certainly is building on a, on a rich intellectual background of other sources. But he's made quite an accomplishment here. I like that idea 
illusion and immersion, I think it does reveal a lot. But it also points in the direction of, now to get back to your question, if we're looking for the fundamental things that are going to help us avoid the extremes of both heroism and immersion and create fulfilling lives, I would say reciprocity. I would say now we're getting back to empathy. I think we have a natural capacity for it. I don't think it is encouraged or rewarded very much in societies as competitive as ours. I think in small communities and in families and in in our closest experience, we might have developed it well, but we don't, it does, we don't extend it as as far as we probably could. And I think we, I would start with reciprocity, heroism, but you cannot create that feeling of heroism. It's been said that Becker didn't write much about love and human relationships. What's your response to that accusation? I agree with that. I mean, we discussed this. In fact, I think you were there at a conference in Vancouver a few years ago. I was, yeah, yeah. This conversation came up after a paper. Somebody made that comment. And I remember responding that that I agreed. But I thought that I think that there is a very fruitful direction for us to go. Those of us who read and write about Becker, I think there's a very fruitful direction we could take that. Immersion is one of the two primary ways that we gain our feelings of meaningfulness. And I think immersion is about our ability to subordinate ourselves to a cause, to join in service and creative offerings of our abilities to support meaningful things. Immersion means that we merge into a larger thing than ourselves. But I think friendships and love relationships of all kinds are such require such immersion from us. And I think that that sort of immersion, his ideas are fruitful tools to start looking at things he did not look at, like the importance of relationship, of love, of erotic love, of companionship love, of love of all sorts of things. That experience of love is our motivation for giving ourselves over to another person or to a cause or to all sorts of things. You're talking in terms of personal relationships, so I'll stick with that. But um, I think that I think he has given us a lot, a lot that we could work with in trying to take forward in creative responses to Becker the power and the importance of our relationships. We could start with coupling relationships, larger families or extended families or groups of people with whom we congregate and come into relationship all sorts of commitments we make to people and groups of people. I think there's a lot we could do with that. So I think he's given us some tools, but it'll be up to others to, to work with them. I think as I think back on that conference you referenced, at the, the one in Vancouver, I could be wrong. I, I probably misremember it, but I probably think... Are. I probably yeah. Thank you, Ken. Uh, uh, but as <laughs> I think of... Yeah, there you go. As I think about it, we were looking at defenses against death anxiety, which is a a theme that runs throughout Becker's work, and or at least his last two books, certainly. And certainly love and interpersonal relationships is a very powerful defense against death anxiety. Maybe that's, and maybe this one that he would have explored later if he had lived people listening to this may not know that becker died at the age of 49 he was awarded 
the Pulitzer Prize posthumously. And his widow, Marie, published his last book. She holds the copyright to Escape from Evil. So there's no telling what he would have written or discovered or found had he lived another 20, 30 years, continue to work. I think that his conclusion, Escape from Evil, I mentioned this earlier, that probably the best illusion we could come up with would be a religious illusion. And I think because of that, I don't have any confidence. I mean, he could have surprised me. I don't have any real confidence that that was where he was headed. But I do think that he provided tools for others to come to that conclusion, even if they're stepping off in a direction that he did not take. I think there's some power here. Becker believed that the illusions had to be religious because he believed that nothing short of absolute transcendence could help us cope with death anxiety. But I don't agree with that. And I think that's something that could be challenged using some ideas of Becker's as well. I mean, when we love someone, that not only gives us an important feeling of our value and our merit and our worth in the eyes of another, that is a kind of heroism. But we also have the anxiety now of not only our own deaths, but the death of our loved one. Yeah. But if you don't agree that the only kind of transcendence that can help us cope with death anxiety is absolute transcendence, you wouldn't even look to see some other kind of interpretation of what goes on in love lives and lives in families and communities. But if it doesn't have to be absolute transcendence, and I don't think it does. I, I've seen other scenarios and worked on other ideas here showing alternatives. But the idea that in our relationships, we may have brought in, we may have had children and raised those children to live on beyond us in our communities where with like-minded people, we have committed ourselves with deep commitments like love to one another and to causes and we are influencing the present and the future. I think anytime we give of ourselves meaningfully to something that endures beyond us, that is a partial cure for death anxiety. We have not only fulfilled ourselves in our lives with those causes, those commitments, but we have left something behind of ourselves. It's surprising to me that he doesn't see this in the world of nature especially for someone who is as critical of our disinterest in taking the destruction of the environment seriously. He thinks that even in the 60s, I mean, he was far more explicit than most people about the environmental degradation that was occurring, to which we were largely indifferent. But the idea that we work for nature and the future beyond us is benefited by it. I wonder, he seems so unexpectedly literal-minded that if I can't persuade myself, I literally don't die. I can't cope with non-being. And I just don't find that to be all that persuasive. I'm not saying it won't work. Perhaps it does. There are many religious people who I know feel like they can cope with life because they know they're not really going to die. And that's fine. But I'm not sure that's the only thing that gives us the feeling that our lives have been meaningful enough it's been enough. It's been full. I'm fulfilled enough that I can let go. 
And I think there are lots of experiences that we can have, but I think loving one other and multiple other people is definitely one of those. Well, I think that the notion of non-being, of not being, I'm saying that the notion of not being, -being, Mm non-being, is beyond the human brain to grasp. It's terrifying in on some levels because you cannot imagine not being you can imagine before you were born you weren't around okay fine but the idea that you're actually going to end and wink out it's just uh, it's it's just it fills the ordinary person consciously or unconsciously with fear unspeakable dread jerry piven loves to talk about this unspeakable dread like you said so much of our notions of empathy and conscience have to do with our own self-preservation that's built in so what some people would call the survival instinct and now we're saying well yeah but we're going to die and if we take religion out of the equation you're going to not only die, you're going to stop existing. I can't get my head wrapped around that very well. I can imagine being in darkness and silence, but not being. That's a tough one. I'm not saying it's easy, but I think I taught a death and dying class for many years. And over the course of just trying new approaches and trying different strategies and different sources, I've read pretty broadly on the subject, and I've been struck as people age by a certain kind of peacefulness that often appears when they are discussing death. And I've read a lot about hospice programs and people who work in them and stories of people, autobiographies. I'm a hospice volunteer relatively recently, but in the last year or so. And you're absolutely right. You're, You're right. I hear that from some people, but then others who are absolutely outraged and angry and bitter. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm only talking about the possibility that it's not the only way people feel about dying and death. And so I would never refute that people, that many people wind up there. And I think that's very sad and it would be very hard not only to, to die in that frame of mind, but to try to comfort and join somebody in that experience who felt that. I don't know any atheists who are dying. When one of my atheist friends reaches that point, I'll be sure to contact you and we can compare notes because most everyone I know who is in the process of, in hospice, in the process of dying, is religious. So it remains to be seen what a religious person thinks death is. It's a, a portal. It's moving through a doorway into another plane of existence, whatever. Move, move toward the light. Move <laughs> right, toward move the toward, light. Right. But not being, non-being. Oh, I agree. I agree. But I talking to someone recently who described his father's death in his 80s, he 
he'd had a number of illnesses, but he was doing very well. But um, he got a diagnosis of lung cancer, advanced lung cancer. And he told his son that he was not going to take treatment, that he was he was ready to go. And he didn't think he could survive the treatment. And that was okay. And I don't think it's some kind of denial or anything like that. I just think I sometimes jokingly say to my husband, we're both in our 70s. I sometimes jokingly say to my husband after I've heard some especially distressing news, we're going to die just in time. And, you know, (laughs) I I realize I'm not looking forward to not existing. But especially when you look at the environmental degradation, look at the fires in the West, look at the temperature, look at, I mean, some alternatives are better than others. Yeah, I, I really, mean, I, I really don't want to. I don't really don't want to spend the last couple of years of my life wondering where my next sip of water is coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. boy. But that makes me wor- very worried about the generations behind me, doesn't it? And especially oh, yeah. people without resources. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then I feel like I'm jump. I'm you know, <laughs> I'm jumping ship too soon. If I could, if I could stay and do something about it, I would. I, I don't know. Heard, I heard some Silicon Valley medical geniuses speaking about us sympathetically because we're going to be among the last to succumb. Mm. They're going to sort it out somehow. Consciousness will survive in some form. We're going to be the last ones who don't make it. Well, let me ask this question. This, this is one that, that's been in the back of my head as we've been talking and it's one we had wanted to ask you what is the danger you see in this notion of individual freedom that America is built on this idea of liberty this idea that we have the freedom to do what we want whatever we want wear a mask don't wear a mask whatever Actually, that is not the concept of freedom and democracy. The concept of freedom and democracy is that each person has all the freedoms possible until their freedom interferes with someone else's freedom. And I think the colloquialism for that is my freedom ends where your nose begins. In other words, I have no right to act in the sorts of ways that limit you or threaten you. So you want the amount of freedom that a culture can give to everyone and no more. And that's the philosophical foundation of of democracy, the concept of freedom and democracy, because you can't remain a democracy if you don't have that kind of equality. Is that what that little logo meant with the snake that said, don't tread on me? That's not what that meant. Okay. Right. (laughs) Seems like it might. I'm not sure. I should I should check my history before I say that. I never knew what that I never knew what that meant. It means if you tread on me, you'll get bitten by a snake. Don't tread on me, pal. Okay. Yeah. Actually, so maybe it is because it didn't say I'll bite you. Well, let's let's drop that. Never mind. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Anyway. For another I'm just talking us into a corner here. I'm assuming you'll edit this out. Yes, there you go. Uh, Maybe. I wanted to ask, how do these ideas relate to us as individuals in contemporary life, and how do we apply them in a way that makes our life better, or at least less bad and less harsh? What's the utility for us as individual people at this time? 
So you mean the utility of, of these ideas we're yes. talking about from Becker? Mm -hmm. I think if you wanted to start with basics, I mean, I, I don't have any grandiose schemes, that's for sure. But I think if you wanted to start with basics, I think we need to get back to some, we've been talking about democracy, some of the, of the so-called democratic ideals that we have not always honored, including and intersecting with Becker, including things like reciprocity. The idea of reciprocity means what's good for me is good for you. What's good for you is good for me. I don't infringe in certain ways. I mean, we're, we're really looking at the sort of freedom that you see in a democracy, including the limits that you see in a democracy, getting back to some sense of, of the empathy behind our ability to know and understand and trust others, see ourselves in them and them in ourselves. I've got to say that sounds very idealistic. And that's I a good thing. A pessimistic note here, but you know, Becker is describing how driven we are for heroism and how willing we are in immersion to follow power figures that will take us anywhere. We feel like their power rubs off on us. And the more power they show, the more excited we are by it and the more we want to follow them. And we're looking in a, in a political situation right now where the outrages of power have gotten us into some very ugly standoffs and led us in some very scary directions. So I almost feel like maybe bringing up democracy and democratic freedoms, maybe this is a good place for us to turn because I feel like along with many other people, our democracy is under attack and we've never fulfilled its promises very fully. We've had slavery, we've had limited voting, we've had all kinds of things. I don't need to go through the, the litany. But the idea is that we're better and better approaching it. So I guess going back to where we started, trying to balance off our efforts for heroism with our willingness to merge into larger, meaningful activities and give our service and time and money to those things. I mean, there are some practical ways that we can apply these ideas. But I think we're in a, a very scary and hard time right now, and we've lost a, a sense of who we are as a nation, and that's very frightening. It's very frightening. It's very disturbing. What we look for is hope. Do you have or do you know of a way to feel hopeful or to find hope for our society and our society's ability to make this a better world? The only There's, way I know is to work for it. Yeah. Becker says freedom, dignity, and hope are what we need. So if we have those, if we have freedom and dignity and hope, we can make a better, a better future in theory. Well, in theory, I mean, that's what Becker's saying. But when you ask me what we need to do, I think it's time that we we actively work towards those goals. That we all find some some of those civic activities and those community activities that help us build the things that we want and that we encourage other people to do it, too. And nobody can do it all and nobody can even do enough. But I don't see the kind of leadership in this country that can sort of call us to attention and persuade us to cooperate. So I, I don't see it coming top down. It's got to come bottom up is what I think. Wow. And bottom up 
I guess, for all the big movements in American history and maybe human history, that's what it's required. So I don't think there's a a savior out there that's going to rescue democracy or the environment. I mean, enough of us will either work for it or we will lose it. I feel hopeful that the younger generation is willing to work for it. Boy, they're impressive. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So that gives me hope. Like you say, we're in our 70s. How much work really are we going to be able to do? But they are more than willing to roll up their sleeves, to get involved. Get well, out. there's plenty of work that could be done, like calling people. Like There are lots of things that have an impact in, within the media that we often curse, <laughs> You know where we are with all, with all this technology. But um, it, we, we can find ways to make it effective. But I'd like to leave them less to do rather than more <laughs> once we're gone. I agree. We can, we can still contribute. This is great. Folks, we've been talking with Merlin Mowry about immersion, uh, a variety of related topics. I can't even count them all at this point. But Merlin, thank you for an excellent conversation. This has been great. It was a pleasure, and I enjoyed you both, as usual. Oh, thank you. I hope you'll consider being our guest again. I saw maybe a half dozen shows (laughs) in just the things we talked about today. Oh. I'm not asking yeah. you for a half dozen, just one more. We'll go one at yeah. a time. Okay, sure. We have more to talk about. I we think do. Is, we is, definitely do. Yeah. You're a delight as always. Okay. Thank you so much. Me Thank too. you, Merlin. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Merlin Mowry about heroism, immersion, and related ideas. So, Steve, what are your takeaways? I have to admit that I was a little bit confused going into this conversation with Merlin. Merlin is usually out ahead of us. It took me a while to understand what immersion is and how it fit into Ernest Becker's larger scheme of things, but eventually I caught up. Merlin said that for Becker, there are two ways to defend against death anxiety. Heroism, which is the individual standing out in a society or group, and immersion, which is merging with something larger than oneself, something meaningful that we don't have to accomplish individually. We can simply be a part of it through our identification, our activities, our service or sacrifice for that cause, or our joining into that effort or that meaningful goal that we're a part of through being part of something larger than ourselves. That way we gain our feeling of value, merit, worth, and meaningfulness and counter death anxiety that way. That's right. And Merlin ties it into the Freudian notion of transcendence, which is an important theme in Becker's work. Merlin says that with the experience of immersion, you have connected yourself to something of transcendent value and you have served or sacrificed in some ways supported and helped move that along to achieve its transcendent goals. So, it's a vicarious kind of transcendence. But Merlin disagrees with Becker that these two motives are the only defenses against death anxiety. Now, she got into that a little later in the conversation, so we'll get to that. Yeah. Now, you brought up narcissism. Right, that's right. And Merlin said that Becker is describing something that, frankly, makes a lot of just common sense to her that we can never escape ourselves. 
The innermost part of what we are is just our own identity, and we can never not be self-concerned and can never not be anxious about our own well-being. We can never not be the center of our own selves, no matter how much else we care about, so ordinary narcissism, not diagnosable, is normal and natural. We asked about empathy, and Merlin responded that our capacity for empathy is pretty deep in us, but not so deep it can't be lost or overwritten. A great source of meaning in life is in terms of our relationships to others. Even if you're going to be a hero, you still need to be acknowledged by other people. Immersion also involves our sense of other people, that we're joining in some kind of shared project. We're making similar sacrifices to support our goal and to support each other in the pursuit of that goal. Right. She thinks the very best way to find meaning and purpose and non-harmful and potentially creative ways is that we have some of both heroism and immersion, like a mixture. We need some heroism so that immersion doesn't make us secondary and play a service role in all of our lives. And we need some immersion so that heroism doesn't make us feel like we're the only thing that matters. She spoke about narcissism, humility, gratitude, heroism, and immersion as being on a continuum. She said, we're all narcissistic, just like we're all neurotic. Again, not diagnosable but in the sense that we have our own self-concern, and it's very difficult for us to overcome it. I loved your example about growing the potatoes, by the way. Yeah, that's one that's been served up to me by my cousin over the years, because I always have crazy ideas about how here's a new way to do things, and he would always say, well, okay, new ways to do things usually don't work, but tell me your idea. So she said this is a very powerful instinct, both at the individual level, but also at the group level, to maintain the status quo, because there's always a danger of disruption and novelty. And then she got to one of those amazing Merlinisms that we will be repeating for years. She said, <laughs> we value heroism more than truth. It's a fundamental Becker idea explained in six words. We value heroism more than truth. Right. Think about the neo-Nazis in Germany and the so-called patriots in America. They're the prime examples of people who value heroism more than truth. I'd like to do a show about that central idea sometime. Yeah, me too. We talked about empathy being necessary for conscience. She said empathy might also make our rule following a little more sensitive and our showing more concern and being a little more generous than just I'm going to follow this rule so I get the candy, or I'm going to follow this rule so I don't get punished. As I thought about this whole idea of conscience, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking that there are many philosophers and preachers and thinkers that talk about conscience as a feeling of obligation to do right or be good that comes from a divinity or immortal soul. But Merlin ties it to empathy, which for her is the way the brain works. She thinks we have a natural capacity for it. She doesn't think it is encouraged or rewarded very much in societies as competitive as ours. She thinks in small communities and in families and in our closest experience, we might have developed it well, but less so in our modern society today. 
Yeah, that's very both straightforward and persuasive. She takes it even another step with what she terms reciprocity. What's good for me is good for you, and what's good for you is good for me. Reciprocity is one of the fundamental things that were going to help us avoid the extremes of both heroism and immersion to create fulfilling lives. What an elegant, concise concept. Yeah, isn't it? And to get something elegant and concise from something that, as you and I both just admitted, was bewildering on the beginning is quite amazing. Another Merlinism. Now, we've known Merlin a long time, and we treasure some of her best aphorisms. One of them is ideas are tools to think with. I have that on my wall. <laughs> Merlin is a Becker scholar. She notes his accomplishments and areas where she's disappointed by him. She recognizes that he didn't cover everything in his books, that he provided tools for others to reach new conclusions, even if they're stepping off in a direction that he did not take. She said, Becker believed that nothing short of absolute transcendence could help us cope with death anxiety. But she doesn't agree with that. She thinks love and families and communities help us cope. When we make deep commitments to one another, like love and to causes, we are influencing the present and the future. If we give of ourselves meaningfully to something that endures beyond us, that is a partial cure for death anxiety. She thinks that's something that could be argued using some of Becker's own ideas. Ideas are tools to think with. How about that, right? I like to think that's what we're about, taking existing ideas a little further. Right, agreed. And on the subject of religion, Merlin says she knows many religious people who feel like they can cope with life because they know they're not really going to die. She says that's fine, but she's not sure that's the only thing that gives us the feeling that our lives have been meaningful enough that it's been enough, it's been full, that I'm fulfilled enough that I can let it go. She says she jokingly will say to her husband, after she's heard some especially distressing news, we're going to die just in time. Well, my wife and I say the same thing at times. We're getting out at the right time. I wish some of my libertarian acquaintances could hear Merlin's concept of freedom and democracy. She says that in a democracy... Each person has all the freedoms possible until their freedom interferes with someone else's freedom. She uses the colloquialism, my freedom ends where your nose begins. In other words, I have no right to act in the sorts of ways that limit you or threaten you. So you want the amount of freedom that a culture can give to everyone and no more. That's the philosophical foundation of democracy. You can't remain a democracy if you don't have that kind of equality. I take that to mean you have a right to not wear a surgical mask or get vaccinated against COVID, but you don't have a right then to go out into society and risk the health and safety of those around you. Rights versus responsibilities. That's it, the fundamentals. Becker's describing how driven we are for heroism and how willing we are to follow power figures that will take us anywhere we feel like their power rubs off on us. 
The more power they show, the more excited we are by it, and the more we want to follow them. We're living in a political situation right now where the outrages of power have gotten us into some very ugly standoffs and lead us into some very scary directions. She feels like, along with many other people, our democracy is under attack. She also said, we've never fulfilled its promises very fully. We're trying to balance our efforts for heroism with our willingness to merge into larger, meaningful activities and give our service and time and money to those things. She said there's some practical ways we can apply these ideas, but we're in a very scary and hard time right now, and we've lost a sense of who we are as a nation. And that's very frightening. Becker says what we need are freedom, dignity, and hope. Merlin believes it's time that we actively work toward those goals, that we all find some of those civic activities and those community activities that help us build the things that we want, and that we encourage other people to do it too. Important ideas, Steve. Yes, they are. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. Support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash the hub important ideas. We are still 100% listener supported. And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, now on YouTube. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.